Welcome to the Libro Europe Podcast, European Libro Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre, and what a great episode we have today. We are very happy to bring you Ihor Samoski, and Ihor is a public policy expert with a focus on digital transformation and EU integration in Ukraine. He currently serves as the head of the ICT sector at the Better Regulation Delivery Office in Ukraine, and he also leads the Ukrainian Infrastructure Association, or UNITE. We invited Ihor to join us on the podcast to discuss the thesis of his chapter that he wrote for the ELF study publication, Design in Brussels, Made in Ukraine, where he had a contribution with the chapter, Digital Transformation, Transparent Reconstruction, and EU Integration. So with no further ado, it's my privilege to bring you Ihor Samolsky. I'm here with Ihor Samolsky. Ihor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here and to talk about such an important contribution you had for the ELF publication that I already mentioned in the intro. The chapter is Digital Transformation, Transparent Reconstruction, and EU Integration. You write beautifully, uh, very well done, so congratulations with that. But before we get into the chapter, please tell us a little about yourself. What was the path that you took to the point that we're now talking on the podcast? Yeah, I'm happy to be here with you and to share my story a bit. Like My path uh, in profession is a mixture of law, public policy, and tech. So I started in a private business, but I cooperated with NGOs, like, like a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw that working with public policy gives you an opportunity to influence the society and country you work in. And then I decided to move into NGO field and I joined European Business Association. This is the, biz the biggest association in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I worked across different sectors, like created uh, policy strategies for various sectors and implemented international projects. However, I was really m the most passionate about tech stuff. Maybe because my first computer didn't have mouse, mouse and uh, windows, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was really eager to deeply work precisely in the tech policy. And therefore, right now I'm at the BRDO, head of basically tech policy team. And we are doing this advocacy campaigns in Ukraine, drafting legislation. We are a think tank, Better Regulation Delivery Office, but we call ourselves think and do tank because we not only recommend something, but we make changes happen, like improving 4G in Ukraine, adopting some big pieces of legislation and other stuff. So I'm excited to tell more about what we do and what's going on in Ukraine. Absolutely. Well, I can see a young Ihor trying to program <laughs> on the computer with, you know, codes, lines of codes on, on a dark screen, I imagine. Yeah, no, I actually didn't code because, like, I was interested in how technologies work more in general. Like, I mean, I had subscription to tech magazines, you know. I was mm -hmm. reading, uh, 
it, it was quite uh, difficult at that time actually to work with computer. Like imagine you have Norton Commander, no mouse. It was <laughs> difficult even to install the game. I was kind of more reading what the technologies are, what is the PC, like books about that, and just using these technologies for my life, which was quite challenging at that moment. Yeah, well, th good for us. Thankfully for us, because otherwise you'll be a video games designer nowadays. Now, getting yeah. a little more into our conversation, um, you mentioned on your chapter there is a history and the recent history due to digital uh, advances naturally that actually sped up the transition in Ukraine for a more digital country. In fact, and I'm going to paraphrase you here, you mentioned that President Zelensky had as a priority before the Russian invasion, naturally, to make the Ukraine state a smartphone, <laughs> which, which I thought it was really interesting. You can get into that a little bit. Uh, and equally, you mentioned that digital tools can be used to enhance liberal democracy, but also authoritarianism, which is a great, again, a great sentence from you. Fortunately, again, Ukraine chose the first option, which is to enhance liberal democracy. Tell us how that was done. Yeah, thank you for asking about this. Really, technology can be used for good and for bad. Like, I'm happy that in Ukraine we use technologies in general to improve our democracy. Like, it's not only about the state in the smartphone, as Zelensky told, but in general about broader digital systems. Like, if we look which uh, systems have been implemented in Ukraine, they really made the processes better, more transparent for citizens. Like, For instance, Prozoro. Prozoro is a system for government procurement. Mm -hmm. It is digital and very transparent. Like It has awards internationally and other stuff. Mm -hmm. Prozoro sales is for sailing state property. It's also digital and transparent. Digital assets declarations. Like When the officials have their declarations, they are published online in Ukraine. And Ukraine has one of the biggest data sets on the declarations in the world. So open data, for instance, government published a lot of state information for free, like not as the directive in the EU says that you can charge money for that. But in Ukraine, it is mostly for free. And a lot of other stuff, like one of the, if you ask about the state in the smartphone, the their DIA app, it's called basically the main app they use and develop. So more than 18 million users are there in this app in Ukraine. And for instance, when the war started, they added the temporary digital document to this DIA app. So when the people had to leave their home without documents, they could identify themselves. Mm -hmm. And they add some features people really need right now. And they, for instance, they don't use this app, even despite the fact that a lot of people use it, to call people to military service. So they use it to provide service to people, but not to ask something from people or to restrict them in any way. So maybe you have additional questions about this. Well, yeah, I was just actually preparing to ask you this because in Portugal and other countries, this digital transition and particularly digital penetration, like you're just saying so many, so many million people on the app and then knowing how to use the app and use intelligently the app, 
Well, you guys have digital tools not too long ago. So how is that transition going on to the general population? How fast can you make it? Because people are not versed in working with apps and cell phones. So how, how, how is that been going on? Well, first, I believe that it depends on the app you use. So mm-hmm. the app, uh, the Ukraine designed TIA app, won uh, a lot of international awards for the best uh, design. Basically, it is very easy to use. Therefore, I believe that Ukrainians don't uh, have a lot of issues with using this app because the design is very easy. Like guys who created the fintech startup, uh, which skyrocketed in Ukraine, helped government to create design of this app. So it is Mm -hmm. very easy to use. It is very so-called sexy. I mean, people like to use it, you know. The brand behind this app is great. The penetration is so high because it's, first, very easy to use. Second, it provides the services people need. Like, for instance, your documents uh, are there and you can show the documents for your car or your driving license Mm. in the app. So you don't need to have it in the pocket. So people just need it and it's easy to use. So in Ukraine, we have mobile internet. People are quite smart. There are a lot of tech talents, but in, in general... I mean, we don't have some issues. Of course, digital divide is a big, big issue in any country. But I mean, 18 million is still half of the population. It's not 100%. Sure. But the first very solid steps uh, were taken. This takes me to a next question. And that is, you were just mentioning the Prozoro, now the TIA app, and you're mentioning that they're very well done. They actually get a lot of awards. They're very user-friendly. This is a testament to the tremendous potential of the Ukraine information and communication technology people working in Ukraine. And actually, you said in in your chapter and fact-check true that you guys rank among the best in the world. Then... It's not only that divide is shrinking, but there's a lot of engine going on behind it to make it, again, speedier, more user-friendly. How does this culture was born in Ukraine? Uh, It's hard for me to answer about how this culture was born. But in general, I would say that people in Ukraine are really hardworking Mm -hmm. and really open to implementing new stuff. We don't have these legacy systems for tens of years from the old companies, you know, and a lot of processes, businesses are around us, uh, were built during the last 30 years. So when you come to Ukraine and you use postal private service or banking system, even state banks, like they have quite decent apps, they have digital processes. So a lot of people who had to move to the EU after the war started, were really surprised how not digitized <laughs> the processes in the EU are. You can say it's, that. Yeah, so actually in Ukraine, especially private business, it's very competitive, very fast. And right now we are happy that government is trying to introduce the same approaches. But I believe this is just how it is. Like tech is so strong in Ukraine. We have so many talents. Really, 300,000 people are employed in tech. Yeah, according to ratings, we are among the best in tech in coding. So the export was growing more than 20% annually. 
in Ukraine before the global war. And even during the first year of the war, it added 5% of exports. When, when you guys win the war and Ukraine is a prosperous and a European Union country, you're actually going to steal all, all your digital talents and bring you to Portugal so that we can make our digital transition work better. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, this is actually one of the challenges. Yeah, what you say is, of course, especially during the war, not after, but during saving talents is something. Sure. We the challenges the industry in general. Mm -hmm. Well, I was kidding. Actually, we're doing a good digital transition in Portugal. I don't want to get into trouble <laughs> here. <laughs> but one one last detail on that, which is also I noticed that Belarus also has a very vibrant tech community, which is a young community, is a vibrant community. And again, it's too bad that all this talent that is coming from our friends more into the eastern part of Europe than, well, in Ukraine, it's completely different history, of course. But in, then in Belarus, I do understand that uh, they are not also free to enterprise, free to innovate, because they're, they're crushed in a way by the system where they are. So something that we hope both changes uh, also in Belarus. Now, let's, ch let's change gear a little bit, uh, because Ukraine digital transformation, you guys are doing it already in the context of the European Union and, of course, the candidacy to become a full member, the EU ascension process. And this is in line with the EU digital decade goals. Tell our listeners a little more about that and what are the central elements of this transformation. Yeah, so basically we as Ukraine have to align our goals and regulations with the European Union because we want to become a part of the EU. So the, the general goals are about skills, improving infrastructure, digital business and digital government. So, of course, Ukraine has to move to these goals. Like you have the KPIs in EU for each of the goals, but... First of all, we have to align our regulation with the EU key. So we have to implement your directives. We are doing this quite actively, especially in the tech sector. It's what we are doing with my team. So we wrote several like very big acts, like for instance, to implement European electronic communications code. And we really adopted these laws in Ukraine. So we have to not only move fastly in infrastructure development or skills or digital services, we have to do it in alignment with the EU technical re requirements, EU directives. So this is what we are trying to do right now. Like you can imagine, uh, for instance, about the broadband, like access to internet is guaranteed by a universal service in Ukraine right now, according to law. But as it is required in the EU. But we have to really build the structures, how this is not only provided in the law, but how it works, how we provide geographical accessibility of broadband everywhere. Are you having help from the European Union or you just have like the rule book and you're applying it? Or do you have like technical help of coming from the European Commission? Uh, of course, there are technical assistance projects in Ukraine, various projects. EU experts help us in understanding what are the requirements, how these rules should work. I wouldn't say that this looks like we have all the help and uh, 
from Ukrainian side, we could relax just, you know, it's, it's very tiny, tiny, tiny help and advice in comparison to how big the challenges are and how big the uh, processes are that should be implemented. Uh, one more political question, let's call it that way, which is, do you feel someone that is intimately connected to this, do you feel like Ukrainian people and Ukrainian politics are comfortable with this full speed ahead, let's do our digital transformation then to be in a larger market? Or do, do you feel that there are still people that may think that it's too restrictive? You know, you have the Digital Services Act, you have all kinds of digital tools that the European Union, you know, get get into it. And naturally so. We just had, like, for example, the question of freedom of speech online and debate online and political advertising online. So is that discussion going on or is just like, let's do the transformation and then we'll, we'll deal with that? Uh, of course, there are such narratives and these discussions are mm -hmm. ongoing on either the EU has the best regulation, for instance, for business, because in many fields, it is uh, said that EU regulations could harm our mm. business because it's it, it has a too high compliance cost. I wouldn't say that it goes to digital uh, field. Actually, it's kind of more about production or food or other stuff, not about tech. So about tech, I believe there isn't so big discussion about this. So we are... Of course, the GDPR, for instance, yeah, personal data, there are a lot of discussions how to implement it. But I would say that in general, people in Ukraine, they stand for joining EU. So we had the Maidan, yeah, we had the Orange Re Revolution. And in general, this path to EU is more important for us than any technical mm -hmm. aspects on the road. So... We are, as country in general, willing to join EU as fast as possible, and we are able to, and we want to implement all the stuff necessary for that. Very good. And we'll be here waiting for you guys when, when the time comes with open arms. Um, moving to another thing that you wrote on your chapter, which I thought was really interesting. Actually, this is a two-part question, which is, Ukraine can serve as a testing ground for the digital transition. This is very interesting because I, I live in a country and there are others in Europe where digital transition, it's mostly painful <laughs> in a way that you have to install a lot of tools. You have to make the tools are running correctly that are transparent, like you uh, so often mention on your own chapter, the need for transparency and the need to be you know, well-regulated. So why why do you wrote that? Why why do you thought that some countries in European Union that already have like for example with the recovery resilience plans have a lot of investment in digital transition are doing a lot of it uh, particularly um serving population serving government serving business still we can learn with you guys get a little bit into that yeah, of course. Thanks. Like for me, it's quite obvious. Like, uh, uh, let me divide it into two parts. First, in general, talents and the speed of processes in Ukraine is something that rarely happens 
in EU. I, I don't speak about talents. Of course, there are talents in every country. But the speed of processes, how the bureaucracy works, in Ukraine, the speed is a bit different. Like, if you want to change something big in Ukraine, there is a chance that you can do it in, like, I don't know, several months. It In any EU country, that would take mm. several years. Mm -hmm. So that, this is the first precondition for that. But I would say that more important is even the next part. So let us think about, for instance, green and digital transition in the EU. Like you have this green deal. Yeah, you have a lot of acts, uh, a lot of visions how to implement this green deal. However, in the stable economy, in the stable state, it's very difficult to implement any changes. For instance, one of the major parts of this green transition is green tax shift. This is, for instance, changing the tax taxation system. So decreasing the taxes for salaries and for personal income and increasing taxes for pollution and harmful mm -hmm. consumption. This is extremely hard to do when you have a balanced budget in any country, like despite either it is Ukraine, UK or USA. If you have a balanced budget to change the taxation rules really in some systematic manner is very difficult because if things go wrong, you don't have money for government mm -hmm. expenses. Yeah. And in Ukraine, we have government, uh, we have budget disbalance al already uh, because of war our economy really shrinked and we are dependent on the external help, yeah? Like from EU countries, first of all, and from US. So therefore we have this room of opportunities to amend our, for instance, taxation system and to implement the approaches you wanted to implement for decades, but never really implemented. Because we don't have this balanced budget, unfortunately. We would like to be a stable economy, yeah? but in the full-scale war, it is impossible. This is one example. And another example is, for instance, the recovery physical process. For instance, we have destroyed like infrastructure. We have destroyed cities, completely destroyed. And they have to be rebuilt. So isn't this the best uh, really ground for testing this green Mm. approaches on construction, on tech, like when you are building from scratch, like imagine, for instance, Lisboa, yeah, it's a vibrant city, living city, and you want to implement some new green approach. It is quite difficult, like you, you have to start small. And if the city in Ukraine is destroyed like 50%, it's very easy to propose new technologies, either di digital or now. So it goes to any field. I I provided you examples from completely different fields, like budgetary and taxation system or physical construction. Well, it's for the wrong reasons. But indeed, let's let's make the maximum of it. Uh, the, the example that you just gave, it's a hurtful one, undoubtedly. The fact that you guys have been having your infrastructure destroyed, a civil infrastructure destroyed uh, by uh, Putin's Russia, But yeah, let's make the best of it, which is, as you mentioned, when we rebuild the buildings, let's rebuild them digital and and uh, uh, environmentally smart. So, yeah, again, it shows the resourceful of the Ukraine people. 
I want to please now get a little bit into the area where you go into recommendations, and you have several recommendations on your chapter, uh, 10 in uh, total number. Uh, we want, of course, our listeners to read uh, your chapter, but give us uh, two or three that you really think would be important to convey in this conversation. I would say that... Uh the most important part is that EU includes Ukraine into its digital projects. Like you have this digital decade policy, yeah? You have resources for implementing this stuff to achieve the goals. And Ukraine needs to be a part of this global process of EU digital transition. So we and it will go to any field, you know, either regulation, skills, uh, state services, like this is what we need, because right now we, of course, are not a part of EU, but we really want to become part of EU and we want to achieve the, the same goals as you want. And for us to be aligned with you, the best way I personally see is that we can join your programs that EU has and we have a better access to resources and expertise. Like this is like the first and foremost, I believe that there is no need to tell about each point from the recommendations, but this is like the general approach. I will put all the links on the podcast show notes so that our uh, listeners can be uh, then taken to your chapter and the publication, which is a very good publication. Now we're going to go off the board. Uh, you mentioned to me in our uh, conversation before we started the podcast that you really wanted to go in a relevant issue. And you mentioned to me the importance of this issue, which is a draft law to decriminalize porn in Ukraine. Why is this important at this moment and why this caught your attention and you bring it, you want to bring it to our listeners? Yeah. So first, thank you for really bringing up this topic. Like digital world and tech world comprises various fields, actually. And pornography is one of the fields in the digital economy. So in UK, the pornography is regulated under the Digital Economy mm -hmm. Act. Unfortunately, in Ukraine, we have uh, quite the opposite situation from the Soviet times. Adult consensual porn uh, is considered a crime. Not only is considered, but 1,000 people yearly face the criminal charges against mm -hmm. this. So this creates, this destroys people's lives. People who want to have OnlyFans account, for instance, move to EU from Ukraine because of this, because in EU almost everywhere it's legal. And this creates a big uh, field for corruption and for dark business, actually, in yeah. Ukraine. Therefore, BRDO and 20 other NGOs, uh, to, together with uh, some MPs, developed a draft law to decriminalize adult consensual porn in Ukraine. And it is right now in the parliament. So I believe this is one of the steps actually like about EU integration, because like EU integration for me isn't only about implementing directives or regulations. It's about respecting individuals. It's about respecting individual choices. It's about being liberal to other tastes and not to send into jail for something that is not uh, 
dangerous for society. Indeed. Again, a question similar to the one that I asked you just a minute ago. And this is something that comes from the bottom up? Or do you think more it was like the political, uh, the legislators saying, we need to fix this problem? Or, or are people also clamoring for that? Uh, no, uh, this is bottom up because first there was petition where 25,000 Ukrainians voted for this. But effectively, it, and it was during the war, actually. During the war, Ukrainians voted for the petition on porn decriminalization. Some of Ukrainians, by the way, collect donates to the army by their nudes, like their only fans mm. initiative. So they use their private nudes to have donations for the army. And uh, after that, we saw that petition really was ignored. And we have the BRDO with other NGOs decided to push forward this issue. So I would say that uh, this is completely bottom-up initiative and even going not from the NGOs, but from the people of Ukraine who, who voted for petition. One last question on, on this, on decriminalizing, but on the other hand now, the other side of the coin, and this is something that I do care about, which is the future of political debate online. Once you guys have the Putin's Russian out of your country and you're working you know, for the future of your nation and, and your land, how do you see the future of political debate online in Ukraine? Because you guys are going to be bombarded by Russian propaganda over and over and over and over again. I'm quite sure that is going to be one of the legacies of this barbarous attack. It's Even after you win the war, they will be destroying, they'll be trying to corrode your country from the inside, like we see in other countries around them. So how, how are you preparing for that? First, we don't know how the war ends and what will be with Russia after this. So, but if there is the same Russia as it is today, which can send the resources to distract like our public opinion, I believe that this is like so small threat for us because This full-scale invasion happened because Russia could do nothing in our politics. So if Russia could, Russia invested billions of US dollars into corrupt Ukrainian politicians, yeah? And they couldn't win the elections. So Russia invested billions of US dollars into buying, I don't know, media or attacking us through social media informationally, yeah? And they didn't achieve their goals. So actually, I would say that, of course, this influence is there, like, and we don't like it. But uh, this full-scale uh, invasion is a testament that Russia can't buy our uh, public, they can't buy our voices, and they can't influence our independency and our decisions as a political nation. So the only way they they saw they can influence Ukrainians is to have the gun at the head of every Ukrainian and killing everyone who is against them. So they can't win us informationally. You know, this is so obvious to me. 
it's good it's good to know it's good that that won't be another you know digital warfare that the russians will do on you because there's no uh, room to grow which is it, which which is good news unfortunately <laughs> there's some countries in european union where we don't see that but there'll be a conversation for another day because um we're running out of time you've been so generous in talking to me But before I let you go, uh, please tell our listeners where they can follow you and the work you do online. I have LinkedIn account, Ihor Samohotsky, and uh, BRDO has a LinkedIn account, so please follow us. And I want to ask, not just follow me, but if you heard something interesting to you, or maybe you want to ask some questions or to propose some collaboration, please write me on LinkedIn and we could discuss like maybe some parts are interesting for you or you're working in the relevant fields and you have some ideas. I'm going to put all links on the podcast show notes. I've been talking with Igor Samodrowski. Igor, the future of Ukraine is in good hands with young talents like yourself, you know, taking the lead in this area in particular in the digital transition for all our listeners and and myself included uh, we need to continue to support our ukrainian friends uh, they need to win this war again putin's russia and become a democratic and prosperous country and in the european union soon enough Ilar, thank you so much for your time it was a great privilege to have you on the podcast Thank you for having me. Thank you for our audience. And Ricardo, I wish that everything you mentioned is uh, like the future we shouldn't expect for long. Like that this is happening in the next, I wish hours, but maybe months. Well, Slava Ukraina. Heroim Slava. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberté Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>